Let's go to the Apostles' Creed. You probably have a copy of it there in front of you. Why don't we read it together? I think we've been trying to do this every week. My, my uh, hope is at the end of our time together going through the Apostles' Creed that you even without trying will have most of it memorized. One of those great things for Christians to have stored away that is a compact uh, statement of Christian doctrine. So let's read it together. <clears throat> I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Very good. Tonight we're coming to the section that speaks not only of the Lord Jesus, Brian covered that last week, believing in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So it's my task tonight to talk about that line in the Apostles' Creed. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, before I get into that, I want to talk a little bit about songs and hymns and how they affect us. Probably nobody here has ever memorized one of my sermons. Anybody here memorize one of my sermons? Ten years. Probably you have a hard time remembering... After church, and someone says, what did the preacher preach on? I have a hard time sometimes in the middle of the week. Somebody says, I, I mean, I know it now because I'm going through Romans, so I can always just say the passage. But sometimes it's hard to remember even what the, what the preacher preached on. What you typically don't have a hard time remembering are the songs. You almost always remember Especially if you do them over and over again. Many of you that came up in a church and you sang so, sort of the same hymns throughout a year. Many of you know those hymns by heart. You know those songs. In fact, one of the things that stays with uh, men and women as they age and if you start a developing dementia. One of the things that remains, the last thing to go oftentimes are those songs. It's why it's important for us that we remember when we sing, we need to be singing things that are really right, that are biblically good, that are rich for our soul, that are worshipful, that come from the Bible, that are either about the Lord Jesus or to the Lord. Some of the favorite music at a church is going to be Christmas music. A lot of you know Christmas songs. How about Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, Peace on Earth, Mercy Mild, God and Sinners Reconciled, 
Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Christ in highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, he's offspring of what? Of a virgin's womb. They're creeping into your songs. You, you know doctrine by what you've remembered in singing. How about um, God rest you married gentlemen? God rest you married gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray of tidings of comfort and joy. In Bethlehem in Israel, this blessed babe was born and laid within a manger upon this blessed morn. The last, the last stanza goes like this. Fear not then, said the angel, let nothing you affright. This day is born a savior of a pure virgin bright. To free all those who trust in him from Satan's power and might, all tidings of comfort and joy. Here's another one. How about silent night? So silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. What's the next? I never really understood the round Yon Virgin. I mean, I got the Yon Virgin. I don't know why she has to be called round. But you remember it, right? Round, yes, she probably is. Round Yon Virgin. Or how about this one? Anybody know the song that Kenny Rogers sings around Christmas? You guys make fun of me uh, because I don't like the song, Mary, Did You Know? You know that song? Y'all probably love that song, don't you? Yeah. I don't like that song. Because obviously she knew, the, the Lord spoke to her about it, so she did know most of this. But one of the lines is, did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod, that when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. And then the last line uh, is that sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. All of those songs, even, even Kenny Rogers, who he didn't write that song, somebody else did. Who? Okay, Mark Lowry, you got it out of your system. Mark, Mark Lowry. Even that song reaches back into us knowing there's something different about this child. Matthew chapter 1, if you have a Bible, I'll take you there. Uh, Matthew and uh, Luke have the clearest, sort of straightforward picture of uh, the incarnation and Jesus being born from a virgin. So why is it we have to outline those things we hold so dear? Why do we need to make sure we rehearse them to ourselves and to one another? I mean, this series, Going Through, the, uh, going through uh, the Apostles' Creed, is helping us have just foundations, right? Here's what Matthew chapter 1 says. Look at the foretelling of the virgin birth of Jesus in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, before they came together, before she'd ever been with a man, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and un unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. They will call his name Emmanuel. Joseph woke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He called his name Jesus because that's what the angel has said. And part of the Apostles' Creed says that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, in, in the story of Jesus, when we start to share Jesus, in the life of Jesus, there are lots of things that people contest and don't believe. One of those things is the resurrection. The, su the supernatural things of Jesus, they're the ones that are hard to explain to people. The resurrection of Jesus is a difficult thing for people to believe. Another one of those difficult things is the actual doctrine of the virgin birth. It's a stumbling block for many people that think of the historical Jesus, who he was, how he came to be, to think that he was conceived miraculously. And what we're saying, when we say we believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, what we're saying is that we believe that a teenage girl, her name's Mary, that she was pregnant without ever having been with a man. And that she gave birth to this person, Jesus, and we say, according to the Bible, that that happened by the Holy Spirit. To... To think of Jesus being miraculously con conceived in the womb of Mary without a father, without a biological father, causes difficult. It is it causes difficulty for a lot of people. But we hold this doctrine to be the starting point. It's the foundation of the gospel. If you don't have this one right, if we don't get that right in the middle of the Apostles' Creed. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. If that is not true, then we don't have a gospel. If we don't have this right, then Jesus is just a man, and the doctrine of Jesus saving us loses all of its power. Then, then our gospel message becomes a house of cards, if this is not true. Several things. Let's, um, let's go through the things we don't believe. Sometimes, to help us know what we do believe, it's good to look at the things we don't believe. There are some things that we don't believe. Do you have a... Let's see, I've got this formatted here. Yeah. There's several things uh, that we don't believe about... Let's uh, talk about Mary. Several things that we don't believe about Mary, and therefore, we disagree with uh, mainly the Catholic Church, but also the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, we would disagree with. There, here's some things we don't believe. We don't believe in Mary's perpetual virginity. We don't think that after she had Jesus, she didn't have any other children. We don't believe that she never married. We don't believe that she had no other children. In fact, the Bible teaches us in Mark chapter 6, if you want to go track it down, 
In Mark chapter 6, we find out that uh, Jesus had brothers, had sisters, had James and Joseph, were two of his brothers, Judas and Simon. James, who wrote the book of James, was his half-brother, his brother. So we don't believe in the, the part of um, Roman Catholic Church doctrine would be the perpetual virginity of Mary. We don't, we don't believe that. Another thing we don't believe, we don't believe in what is known as the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception of Mary is the idea that Mary, not, not just Jesus, but take another step back, that Mary um, was conceived by her parents without original sin. So that she was conceived and there was no original sin there. This is a doctrine, um, I mean, we, we believe that Mary, as great as she was, we do have a great respect, tremendous respect for Mary. The Magnificat is one of the most beautiful pieces of Scripture. But she was born like every other person that's ever been born, and she died like every other person that ever died. That she had a sinful nature like, like you and I. Not only do we not believe in the Immaculate Conception, we, we don't believe in the Assumption of Mary. Some of these words are going to be foreign if you've not interacted much with a Roman Catholic. How many of you are from a Roman Catholic background? Okay, you're hearing some of these uh, terms. These are some things that, that, make a, that are, are dividing between Protestants and Catholics. We don't believe in the Assumption of Mary. The Assumption of Mary is the doctrine... That holds it at the end at the end of her life when she died. Really, she didn't die. She was more taken up into heaven. Uh, think about Enoch. Remember the story of Enoch in Genesis. Uh, Enoch walked with God and he was not. The Lord for the Lord took him. Or um, um, Elijah. Think about Elijah and the the chariots of fire. Remember that story. There's no biblical account for that happening to Mary. We don't believe in the assumption of Mary. I'll give you a fourth thing, and I'll quit with these. I'll go to the things we do believe. <clears throat> Number four, we don't believe in the veneration of Mary. Veneration. No, notice how I worded that. Uh, I worded that carefully because uh, be careful how you talk to your friends that are Roman Catholic. Because uh, don't say that they worship Mary. They will not appreciate you saying that. Because they would argue we do not worship Mary. A better word is venerate. Venerate means it's beyond respect. We see a special place for her. But it falls short of worship. They would say we don't worship her. But, but as, as much as she was used by God... She's not different than any of us. The Bible doesn't give any reason for us to think that she somehow is different than any of us. Okay, those are the things that we don't believe about the Virgin Mary. But we do, however, believe in the virgin birth, the virginal birth of her son Jesus. Now, this is, this is really important. I was reading a theology book uh, this afternoon, getting ready for the class, and I thought it was a trustworthy book. And as I went through it, the author, um, 
he said, I personally believe in the virgin birth of, of Jesus, but he said, I don't think that it's necessary for Christianity. To have a problem there. So, so I immediately uh, put the book down. The reason, um, the reason we're going to spend some time here because uh, this is important for us. This is like um, this is like the floor I'm standing. I got to have the floor to stand up and be able to walk around for Christianity to function as Christianity as the Bible says. This is one of those planks in the floor that's got to be there. Here's a couple of reasons we believe it. <clears throat> the virgin birth is outlined, it's detailed, and supported in the Scripture. Do you have Isaiah in front of you? Isaiah chapter 7? <clears throat> I'll just give it to you. I, we may have it on. Do we have Isaiah 7? Isaiah seven fourteen. Isaiah himself says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and we will call his name Emmanuel. Now, we spend a lot of time talking about Emmanuel, God is with us. We don't talk much about the fact that hundreds of years beforehand, the prophecy is that a virgin will be pregnant without a man, and she'll give birth to a son. That son will be God with us. We believe that the Old Testament pointed to the virgin birth. We believe that from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, do you know Genesis 3? Uh, that's Adam and Eve and the fall. So Adam and Eve both fall, Eve and Adam. Adam's there with her. They end temptation. And then the very next chapter, chapter 4, a child is born. This is after God promises that there's going to be one coming that will be the Savior. Genesis 3.15 is the gospel. Chapter 4 she has two children, Cain and Abel. You remember Cain's going to kill Abel? And her, what she says is, I have gotten a child with the help of God. The feeling is, this is the promised child. And, and of course it wasn't. So from Genesis chapter 4 all the way up to Matthew, every time there's a birth, there's this thought, this could be the child. So we believe the Old Testament pointed to the virgin birth, but the New Testament outlines the virgin birth. You find it in Matthew chapter 1. You find it in Luke chapter... In Luke chapter 1, uh, that's where you normally go for the Christmas story. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38, you see this long picture of the virgin birth of Jesus. Now, if you deny that, if you, if you say, you know what, that's not important, then you, you deny the veracity... The, the inerrancy of Scripture. And what I'm saying is, if you take that out, if you take the miracles like Thomas, and Je uh, Thomas Jefferson did, take the miracles, do you all know his Bible? Thomas Jefferson Bible where he cut out all, Thomas Jefferson took the New Testament and cut out all the miracle, the supernatural things that Jesus ever did. He said he believed in the man Jesus, he believed in his teaching, didn't believe the miracles. Cut them all out. The Jefferson Bible. You can look it up somewhere. You do that, you take away from the power of the Scripture. You take away from the inerrancy of the Bible. You take away from the veracity. It, you take away a reason for us to study the Bible on Wednesdays for me to do expository preaching. If we don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, 
When I say sufficiency, what I mean is not just that it's true, but it is sufficient for us to hear from God, to learn who God is, to know how to live. I, in fact, I would press that the Bible that, that takes us to the gospel, it is sufficient for the issues that we face. But if you start picking things out, then you're taking away, you're taking away from the power of the Scripture. A whole lot rides on whether or not you believe in the virgin birth. I'll give you a second thing. The virgin birth <clears throat> points us to the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. It points us, when I say deity of Christ, what I mean is, it points us to the fact that Jesus is God. You hear someone say deity of Christ, that is saying Jesus is God. It teaches us that he was not just a man. Thomas Jefferson believed he was just a man. We don't believe that. That he was not just a man like you and me. He was, in fact, all God. If you've, if you've got a Bible, it's worth um, looking at. We'll probably have it on the screens. One of the great hymns of Christ is in Philippians chapter 2. A lot of you will know it when we read this. Philippians chapter 2. I'll just read from verse 1 uh, to 11. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort and love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection of sympathy, complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So here comes the description of Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, so the, the description here, in Philippians, Paul said that Jesus had to empty himself to become a man. So the, that word is uh, it's the word kenosis. There's lots of theological argument as to what that actually means. What did it mean for him to empty himself? We're not really sure exactly what Paul meant when he wrote that, except to say that he, being all God, emptied himself, became man. Like we, we did this a couple of weeks ago. You know um, John chapter 1? John chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that the Word, verse, verse 14, remember that? The Word became what? The Word became flesh. If you flip over to Hebrews, you're reading in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us that, that Christ is the radiance of His glory, that that he's the exact representation of his nature and that he upholds all things by the word of his power. And oh, I'll stop there. But it's a beautiful picture. Jesus is God. That's what the virgin birth tells us. The virgin birth tells us something else, though, too. The virgin birth points us to the humanity, the humanity of Jesus. 
We believe that it was all God. We, we, for us to be saved, we have to believe that. We also have to believe that he all, is all man. We believe that Jesus is all man. Mark In Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 1, 2, and 3, let me read that. Mark chapter 6. This is what the Bible says. He went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, and they said, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here? So you see he had brothers and sisters. Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense of him, at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. A man. This points us to the humanity of Christ. Telling us that he was born a woman. He had brothers and sisters. He lived in a town. He had the same people around him that liked to gossip, say things. The virgin birth points us to the humanity of Christ. Let me give you a fourth thing. The virgin birth made possible the unity of the full humanity and the full deity of Christ. So, so think with me on that now. The virgin birth made possible the unity. So we said Jesus is fully divine, okay? He's also fully human. What the virgin birth does, this is why it's important, it made it possible... For the full humanity of Jesus and the full deity of Jesus to be together. That, that is, that Jesus, the only one to ever have it, Jesus came and had two natures. Two natures come together. It's known as the hypostatic union. You write that down somewhere and look it up later. A hypostatic means... That two natures are brought into the one person. That all God, all man person, Jesus. In fact, if you want to do a little study on it, uh, the creed of Chalcedon in 451 AD, uh, that creed says this. That Christ is the Son and Lord, the only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. Two natures. This means that the virgin birth was the means by which God used to send His Son into the world as a man. In fact, I preached it uh, sometime here. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. You see what's packed into that language? God sending forth his son, born of a woman. 
Virgin birth made possible the unity of the full humanity, full deity of Christ. We must have the full humanity as our representative. We must have the full deity as the one who is fully righteous. Let's go further here. Uh, number five. The virgin birth affirms the sonship of Jesus. What I mean by that is that he is the son of God. Now, we already looked at, at Galatians chapter 4. If you had to think of a scripture that calls Jesus the son, what do you think the most popular verse would be? Okay, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The virgin birth affirms the sonship of Jesus. So you know that one, right? How about uh, Mark chapter 1? If you got Mark chapter 1. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 1 verse 1. Look what that text says. Mark chapter 1 verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ who is the son of of God. In fact, beyond that, Son of God is the title that the angels used when they visited Joseph. A little Bible drill. All right, let's go to Luke. A little Bible drill. Uh, Luke chapter 1. Look what the angels said. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. Speaking of Jesus, the angel says he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Look down at Luke chapter one, verse 35. Therefore, a child will be born and will be called holy, the son of God. So think with me now about all of this. I'm sort of stacking up. Mark called him the son of God. The angels called Jesus the son of God. The fact that he was the son of God was spoken by God himself. At Jesus at his baptism, look look with me, um, Mark chapter one at the baptism of Jesus, about verse eleven, ten or eleven. I'll back up to verse nine. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice from heaven came and said, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So you've got Mark, angels, John's gospel, Jesus himself. You've got God the Father saying that. You know that Satan, even the devil, Right, so, so go with me to Matthew chapter 4. Just flip back a few pages to the left of where you are in, in Mark. Matthew chapter 4. Remember what... Um, Matthew chapter 4 and about verse 2 or 3. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter, this is the devil... The tempter came to him and said, if, now you see that word if, that, that should be since. When you're reading in, uh, in, in Greek, it should be, since you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Even the devil. So, 
God from heaven declared Jesus is the Son. Satan declared, as he tried to tempt him, Jesus is the Son. Mark, as he wrote it down, says Jesus is the Son. Angels declared Jesus is the Son. Do you remember the transfiguration? Mark chapter 9, you can find it if you want to. Right, let's go ahead, we've got time. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, I'll start in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. His, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. There he appeared, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he didn't know what to say. Just note to yourself, sometimes it's okay just to stop talking. <laughs> Peter didn't know what to say, but he just kept on talking, right? Sometimes it's all right, even if it's mid-sentence, just stop talking. So he's talking, um, he didn't know what to say, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. This is God saying to Peter, because Peter's talking, this, this is my son. Do you understand that from every angle when you read the Bible, the virgin birth of Jesus points us to the sonship of Christ, which is important for us. You, you go and listen to Jesus himself when Jesus prayed in Matthew chapter 11, or go and read John chapter 17. John 17 is a beautiful chapter that shows us Jesus praying for his very own. If you ever want to feel secure in Christ, go and read John chapter 17 and know that that is Jesus praying for us. There Jesus presents himself as the Son. Do you remember what uh, Peter said to Jesus at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 16? Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. Do you remember the rest of that? Or y'all had it there. But you knew it, right? You knew that. How about when Jesus is hanging on the cross? Go with me to the end of Mark. Mark chapter 15. Jesus is on the cross the Roman centurion, he's a hardened guard, is going to say more gospel than he ever knew. This is not to say that he got saved. This is that he's going to speak more gospel than he ever knew. Mark chapter 15, verse 39. When the, when the Roman soldier, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. Or, go with me to the end of Matthew. Matthew 28, you probably don't have to go there. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. You guys know the Great Commission. Uh, we're, we're learning it for our memory verses. And there in the Great Commission, this passage we love so much, when Jesus is, is preparing to ascend, after talking about making disciples, he said in verse 19 of that passage, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and what else? the Holy Spirit. There's Jesus himself declaring sonship. 
I mean, even in the midst of this Trinitarian formula, declares he's the Son of God. All of that to say, this one little phrase about the virgin birth affirms for, affirms for us the sonship of Jesus. That it's not just these outside forces saying that he's the Son of God. We, we have a detailed account in the Bible. If you go and trace it down, you can see over and over from different venues, here is this declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. He is presented in every way to be the Son of God. But we need more than that. I'll take it to number six. The virgin birth points us to the sinlessness of Jesus. <clears throat> the sinlessness of Jesus. The virgin birth tells us that. That we, I'm not saying he was sinless in the sense that he was such a great guy that he didn't commit sins. Maybe you've met people that were so nice you couldn't imagine them committing sins. And you thought, I mean, she's, notice I said she, because certainly not guys are not like this, but she, such a nice person. I mean, that, that's not. The virgin birth says, no, it's not niceness. It's not that he doesn't commit sins. There's something deeper. The virgin birth points us to the sinlessness of Jesus, that he is without a sinful nature. Now, why is this important? Well, because every one of us here, we were all born from two parents. Two humans, both of which have sinful natures. So, if you are an especially sinful person, you can legitimately blame it on your mom and dad. You got it from them. You inherited that, right? He, Jesus came into this world. If he would had two human parents he would have Adam's sin it's important that we see he does not have Adam's sin his sin his sinlessness is absolutely vital to our salvation if he is not without sin then his death on the cross has no efficacy for us it has no power for us it is vital that Jesus lived a sinless life because His righteousness is given to us. This is important for salvation. This is important for sanctification. This is important how you see yourself as a son or daughter of God. We oftentimes talk about uh, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. It's true that we are saved by what Jesus did on the cross. That's true. Now, all of that is absolutely true. It's just not the entire truth. The entire truth is, yes, he did pay, if you're a believer, for your sin, but that's not the only thing he did. He lived completely righteous. Now, the first time I introduced this phrase, I had lots of questions. When I said that we depend on the earned righteousness of Jesus. And a lot of people say, I got emails. You said that Jesus earned righteousness and he... Are you saying he wasn't already righteous? I, I didn't do a good job explaining it. When I say earn righteous, I mean he comes into this world being completely without sin and then proves it in how he lives. He comes into this world completely without sin. That's not the earned righteousness. That is inherent righteousness. The earned righteous, the earned righteousness is his life lived walking like you and I walk and not sinning. 
Hebrews says that he was sinned in Hebrews 4. He was tempted in every way but what? But without. That is an astonishing verse to me. Do, do we have that? Yeah, no. We the fact that he, how did he do that? How is it that Jesus was tempted like I'm tempted? So, so just think about the things you're tempted with. And you take that and go with it, go to, to carry it over there to Hebrews 4, it's about 15, and look at it. That he was tempted in every way. 40 days in the, in the desert, Satan tempting him. And yet, he didn't sin. That is important for my salvation. Not just Jesus dying in my place, right? I need his righteousness because I'm not righteous. I got big sins, little sins, got world-class sins. All of those things, he died for those right. He took away the punishment. There's sin still there. I need someone to take the sin away and give me righteousness so that I can worship. This is, this is so you can, your head can walk in shame because you have the righteousness of Christ. We, we can't live without sin. Don't point somebody else's sin. you got a whole lot of sin. All of us, we, we have, there's, I have no ground to stand on the point of your sin, regardless of what your sin is. It takes the same amount of sin to send everybody to hell. He, he didn't just die for us, he lived for us. So we're not just saved by what happened on the cross, we're saved by the life of Jesus, the active obedience of Jesus. That's a doctrine you need to get a hold of, especially if you've, if you struggle with guilt, the active obedience of Jesus, the earned righteousness of Jesus. The, and that victory is shown to us in the resurrection. We'll talk about that down the road. The resurrection of Jesus. Our, our prayers are answered because of the ascension of Jesus. Sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes that the sinlessness of Jesus says, for our sake, he made him to be sin. That is to say, he took your sin, put that on Jesus. He knew no sin, so that in Christ we might be the righteousness of God. You see the trade-off? It's the great exchange. Right? His righteousness becomes mine, my sin becomes his. His righteousness becomes mine. Do you believe that? That you are right? That's yours? You are, you are accepted by God because of the righteousness of Jesus. His righteousness becomes yours. Your sin becomes His. So what, what a trade that is. So after the punishment has been paid, there is still a judgment to be had. We stand at the judgment knowing that our price has been paid, the judgment has been paid, but not only that, I can stand at the judgment before God with the righteousness of Christ so that all of my sins are forgiven, but I'm also standing there able to be accepted by God. It's so, it's so important that we get the virgin birth of Jesus. And the virgin birth of Jesus is at the very bottom of this doctrine. It is what we can stand on. Hebrews chapter 7 says it like this. Hebrews 7 verse 26 for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Speaking of Jesus, says he's holy, innocent, unstained, 
separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He, he is our substitute that died on the cross in our place, and in so doing gives us his righteousness. I'll, I'll uh, give you one more. Do I have one more? Oh, gosh, I need two more. Gracious, I didn't know I had so much. Number seven, the virgin birth speaks to the nature of God's grace. The nature of God's grace. Started talking about the differences between uh, Protestants and Catholics on the very front end of this study. The Catholic Church believes, um, when they talk about salvation, Catholic Church would say that we believe in God's grace and works. That God's grace and our works work together so that to be saved, you also have some skin in the game. We, we don't believe that. We believe that salvation is all initiated by God, that He does the saving, and that any work that is done is what God has done in order to save us in Jesus. You read it in Matthew, and you read it in Luke. And both of those, one from Mary's side, one from Joseph's side, give us a full picture of the incarnation. In either Matthew or Luke, salvation comes through God's plan. He planned it, spoken of in Isaiah chapter 7. We find the roots of it all the way into Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This was God's plan all the way up. You go to Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. It's the plan of God. Paul writes in Ephesians, We are saved by God's grace through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift. We talked about this last week or the week before. So that nobody will boast. And at the bottom of, of our understanding of Christianity, what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be saved, at the bottom, at the foundation level, is our understanding that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The virgin birth is about God's grace. It is God doing this. I mean, I mean, honestly, nobody would come up with this plan. You wouldn't think this up. This is God reaching in, breaking into humanity. I'll give you one last one. Last one. The virgin birth speaks to God's sovereignty over nature. That God is in control of all things. We believe that's why we pray for people. That's why we have a prayer list. We believe that God works and he does so through prayer. That we actually are asking God to do something and it actually makes a real difference. We believe that God is sovereign over our health. We believe that God heals people. That's why we pray. And the virgin birth of Jesus is not the natural way of things. This is not. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see. This is not how people come into the world. It's not the natural way. But what God has done is has worked that is against the natural. He's worked over nature. You can find it in several places in the Bible where, where God provided a child when a mother was either barren or she couldn't have children or she, was, she maybe was too old. You have Isaac and Samuel, even John the Baptist. And, and yet God's sovereignty broke in and changed that. But here in, in, in the picture of Jesus, here is the greatest picture of God the Father being sovereign over all creation he decided to use a means that is so special and so different and so supernaturally inclined, he interceded to provide a sinless Savior through the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. 
We believe that Jesus is the only Son of God conceived of the Holy Spirit, making him all God, all man. We believe that God did that to give us the full gospel, the saving power of Jesus because of our sin problem. And our sin problem is only solved by the God-man. Jesus, our Lord, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We believe that so we can believe in the power of the cross that saves us. I hope that's given you a, a little deeper thought on the virgin birth. Let me pray for us. We'll be dismissed. <clears throat> Father, thank you for working in a way that we would never, ever come up with. Thank you that you've given us the natural world, and yet you operate outside of it. We thank you for the grace you've given us in Jesus. We pray you strengthen our faith, that we could walk with confidence and trust. We thank you that our sins are paid for, and we thank you that you have taken our shame and given us righteousness. Lord, may we walk in that. May we sense the security and grace and love you give us in Jesus. Father, I pray you wake me up in enough time tomorrow, all of us in enough time tomorrow to spend time in your word. Get our hearts prepared to gather again on Sunday to worship you. Thank you for this church and all my friends, brothers and sisters here. And I pray you walk with them all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. You're dismissed.